we don't really push the envelope. More like open it. This is Litopia, After Dark. The Net's first and foremost literary salon. A feast of ideas for your hungry mind. So pull up a chair and let's talk. Good evening. No less a literary luminary than the late Gore Vidal praised tonight's guest for writing, quote, one of the most important books of the past ten years. And Dan Rather, who you can hear right here on Radio Latopia's Debriefer show, called it a tour de force. It's made me rethink, he says, even those events I witnessed with my own eyes. Well, the book is called Family of Secrets, as author is Russ Baker, and is here with us tonight. And also, back with us, is Dave Bartram. Dave, those are stellar review quotes I've just read out, and I'm wondering if you could choose who was going to review your book, and indeed what they would say about it. Uh, what would you choose? Uh, there, there are so many you could choose, like the Pope or whoever, but I think I'd go George for George Pope. Osborne, and I'd really hope he'd hate it because <laughs> the thought that of that oligenous parasitic tapeworm of a man liking something I'd done <laughs> really upset me. So I take it you don't like him, Dave, is that right? <laughs> no, not keen. Not one of his biggest fans. So why would you fashion. want the Pope to review your book? Well, he, he could say it was better than the Bible. Better than the Bible, yes. Yes, one of the few who could say that with some authority. Ali, same question to you. I think J.K. Rowling, actually. And I'd like her to say that I'm clearly her successor. That would be really nice. Not the Pope. <laughs> Gathered from all five corners of the digital globe. From far, from near, from us to you. Tonight on Litopia After Dark. Russ Baker. Family of Secrets is a magisterial work. That's what I say. Uh, it's based on more than 500 interviews and features more than 1,000 footnotes extraordinary actually it's probably about 20% of the book the footnotes I was absolutely transfixed when I first read it it's not I repeat not a low-grade conspiracy theory uh, pile of drivel it's actually almost a scientific analysis I think of one family the Bushes and how they've exercised control over many of the levers of power of state for the past 50 years my own feeling for what it's worth is that in decades to come the book is going to be more and more appreciated for providing a deeper historical understanding of current events than most other contemporary news sources. But traditional media has not been very kind to you in your book, has it? No, they, they really don't know what to do with anything that presents a substantially new view of events because they've been saying the same old thing and essentially running the same old sort of quiz show version of everything. Uh, it's just too hard for them to shift. The central thesis of the book, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that the Bush family has had a long and pretty secret association with the Central Intelligence Agency and indeed the CIA itself originated in those highly elite financial circles that included the Bushes and their friends and their business associates. And you kind of trace this down through the decades. What made you get into this in the first place? Uh, back in the early, oh, let's see, 2002 to 2004, I was actually living in the in, in Belgrade and uh, uh, was training journalists over there in the former Yugoslavia in investigative reporting uh, and the importance of doing investigative reporting in uh 
strengthening democracy, actually uh, sent over on a contract from, ironically or not, the U.S. government, uh, which loves to uh, encourage good investigative reporting outside of the in, United States. In other States. countries. Yeah. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> and so, you know, they have all this democracy building everywhere but at home. And so I uh, was, was uh, doing that. And then we had the run-up to the war with Iraq. And I was writing articles actually from Belgrade uh, warning that this was a contrivance that uh, that that uh, uh, that there uh, there appeared to be a an intent to go in more than a need, uh, and so and yet when when the war began, I I found myself as sort of a victim of uh, the the shifting perceptions of the United States. And so everywhere I went, and I traveled, I was in London, I was in uh, Antwerp, I was all over the place. Everywhere I went, I met with hostility uh, as an American. And I thought this has really been a kind of a sea change in the reactions to Americans in general, and that, that this had largely been caused by George W. Bush and by his family. And so at some point, uh, early 2004, as he was running for re-election, and as it became clear to me that despite the evidence that uh, the, 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 the Iraq War uh, had been uh, built up on falsehoods, that he was possibly on his way to re-election. And I was so astonished by that, I thought, I'd better get home, and I'd better start figuring out what are the... Uh, deeper currents running through this country that explain what's going on. And that's when, how many years of work went into it? Uh, about five years. Five years, my goodness me. So you eventually finished the manuscript, um, and it's it's a pretty big one. I'm guessing, let's see how good I am at this. What is it, about 120, 150,000 words? I think you're right, it's probably about 150. About 150, okay. So that's that's an awful lot of research, an awful lot of writing. So you finished it. Did you have a publisher at that point? Uh, we, we had several offers. Uh, you know, no, you, you know, there's almost no book uh, has the vast majority of publishers chasing it, no matter how good it is. Yeah. Uh, and if you're lucky, you find an agent. <laughs> That's very few people even find a good agent. And then, uh, uh, and then uh, if you find a good agent and then that agent takes it out, usually there are very, very few offers on almost anything. Uh, we had several uh, good publishers interested. Uh, and then uh, about a year year before I finished it, we uh, made a deal with uh, Bloomsbury, which, as it happens, is a British. Yes, it is, actually. And that was with their, with their American uh, subsidiary. Yes, okay. So Bloomsbury Company, I know well in my former life as an author. I was a Bloomsbury author, and of course Bloomsbury pretty much expanded on the basis of Harry Potter. So it's good to know some of that money, uh, <laughs> Russ, has actually ended up in, in, in your pocket. I'm quite pleased about well, that. I'll take a higher percentage of the Harry Potter stuff if they want to do that. Well, I don't think so, somehow. Did you have any pushback at all? Yeah, were there any sort of ructions along the, the path to publication? Well, you know, that's not how these things work. And, and of course, when you're writing about secrets and about people who do everything secretively, uh, the likelihood that they're ever going to come after you in an obvious and public way is ex slim. <laughs> so it's a fairly smooth path. Well, no, actually not. But, but all of these strange things happened. Uh, so, for example, many of the top American publishers backed down... Uh, uh, saying, uh, I would dearly love to do this book, but I don't have the, I, you know, if you want to use Spanish, cojones, uh, to do it. Uh, this is fabulous. I wish I could. Uh, this is just a little too scary for me. We got a lot of that. And then uh, as we got ready uh, to publish, uh, we 
began running into all these strange things where major TV shows, major radio shows, newspapers, magazines that were greatly excited by Family of Secrets uh, would, uh, one after the other, after uh, some staff people there said, okay, yes, we're ready to go, uh, something would happen and suddenly my appearance would be canceled. And so this happened again and again and again. In fact, uh, most of the people around me from my agent and my publisher, they were astonished. They'd really almost never seen anything like this before. And what's your analysis of that? Well, I don't know quite how that works. We're still sort of trying to figure it out. I just had drinks the other day with a, another major publisher. And I said, how do you think these things happen? And my sense is a lot of it, it's a combination of uh, sort of a self-censorship and an, an awareness of what one can and cannot get away with, uh, that I think that this is really one of the grave dangers. And I, uh, I say this in, I think it's the uh, closing section of my book, that, that a lot of the real danger in a, in a supposedly free society is that it's not that we are uh, 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 taken away, hustled away to jail for saying or thinking what we do. It's that we know not even to, to go there. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the, you know, the censorship and the fear in our own minds minds of, of you know, not even so much that, that something uh, explicitly bad will happen in the, in the, in the, in the sense of, of, of some sort of unfortunate accident or something. It's, it's almost like a, just a sense that we'll be ridiculed, that we will no longer be invited to uh, sup at the feast, uh, that uh, opportunities uh, will not come our way. And, and this is very, very common. You know, if you go right back to early in my career, I had done uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and I was taken to lunch by one of their editors, and he was uh, fond of my work that I was doing at places like the Village Voice, and he was sort of sort of scouting me for the Times, uh, and he asked me to bring some of my clippings with me, and I brought one, an article about the CIA, uh, which was a cover story in the Village Voice back in the early 90s, and he started s skimming it uh, during lunch, and and one phrase caught his eye right away, and it was uh, uh, it was about the questioning whether how much of the CIA's role was actually to serve the interests of very wealthy institutions and individuals. And he looked at that, which I, I think a statement that's hardly that shocking, uh, and he became very, very upset. And he said, well, why do you write things like this? <laughs> it seems to be true. And he said, that doesn't matter. Don't you understand? You can't say things like this. And he seemed to be very, very upset that his, his ideas of a, a new, bright, young, you know, shiny thing for the New York Times had been dashed. Coming back to your mate at the New York Times, I mean, that's pretty much what I, I wanted to ask you in any case. I mean, why is it, Russ Baker, that you do write the things that you do? Well, you know, it just seems like why be a journalist if you can't tell the truth? I, I just I don't get it, and I, I you know for for the first uh, two decades of my journalism career, I I was about as edgy as I thought I could be, but I was constantly sort of pulling my punches, uh, or either just doing it instinctively, or having editors do it for me, or friends say, oh I take sentence out. And it just took me a really long time to, for it to dawn on me that it wasn't just that we were doing this because that was, you know, propriety and good taste. It was that we really were worried uh, about being tarred somehow. And that, and that when you're a journalist, the whole point of being a journalist is that you don't let anything, and I mean anything, stop you from telling the story. So you were talking about the run-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, you wrote articles expressing scepticism about the 
evidence that supposedly justified that particular action. And you were looking also at the activities of another journalist, another one of your ilk, but maybe of not your ethics, somebody called Judith Miller. Yeah, now she was a star at the New York Times and had all these best-selling books and was sort of on the beat of bioterror and what have you. And she was way out there in front, sort of with the alarmist stuff about Saddam Hussein. And some of her things didn't make sense. And then uh, in 2003, when they were now on the hunt for the weapons of mass destruction, and by the way, I, I instantly, my, my antennae go up whenever I see uh, terms like weapons of mass destruction because, of course, those, those are always hatched in some boiler room somewhere where people are trying to come up with a terminology that's going to sort of instantly capture the public's imagination. And so anyway, uh, reading her stuff and feeling there was something wrong with it, and then I began comparing her work with that of a fellow at the Washington Post, and they were essentially embedded in the same unit, and his stuff was completely different, and I thought there's something wrong. And I So I wrote a piece for the Nation magazine, which got quite a bit of publicity, and I think that was one of the first ones to begin to question Judith Miller's work, and uh, anybody who's followed what happened to her know that she had a sort of an ignominious end, uh, no longer working for the New York Times. Um, I don't know what she's doing anymore. 9-11 attacks, 2003 invasion of Iraq, the wrong country, and then of course the re-election of George Bush. I mean, how, how would you explain this to a future generation? Well, first of all, I think most people don't pay very much attention. That's that's number one. Number two, uh, elections are essentially grand spectacles. They're entertainment. And people vote for... Uh, how people make them feel, uh, how much they like them. They, there's often this saying, would I like to have a beer with that fellow? Or uh, you, you, there's a lot of interest in the wife. <laughs> it's quite interesting. You never hear from the wife again. But during campaigns, they, you actually, I like to go out and talk to my average, you know, my fellow citizens. They're often talking about that wife really bothers me, <laughs> you know. And then I say, well, gee, you know, so this is how we'll be deciding sort of the future of humanity then, I guess. So, you know, that's very, very disturbing. But, but the other thing is is that uh, campaigns are often determined by a number of things. One is by who even has an opportunity to get into uh, the general election, the shaping of the process behind the scenes. And then once you've, you're in the general election, there are all these things that go on that I would put in loosely into the category of dirty tricks. This is really tantamount to the kind of uh, uh, things that the covert operations that um, these intelligence services routinely do. And this gets us back again to the Bushes and the whole history of, of their family being into, intertwined with intelligence services and the uh, efforts to undermine democracy uh, and distort the political processes in other countries and how that same kind of thing actually happens right here at home. Now, of course, Father Bush um, was himself the uh, director of the CIA, so it's no surprise really, there's a connection there. But one of the surprises, one of the many surprises in your book is a very well-researched researched prior connection. Can you just tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, first of all, when I began working on Family of Secrets, and I think one of the strengths of the book is that uh, I had no agenda. I had no idea where I was going. I simply wanted to understand if there was some deeper explanation of the 
recurring uh, uh, influence of this family. Uh, and as I say, right, you know, 19, uh, 2004, when I began the work, was when uh, we were learning such bad things about George W. Bush, and yet he was on his way to a very likely reelection. I thought, well, how could that be? In other words, and why was so much money, staggering sums of money from very wealthy people and corporations were backing him? Uh, and it wasn't just that they were backing him. It was that they were, they were backing a person of uh, no uh, great distinction, I mean, to, to be generous. Uh, and, and it wasn't just that they were backing somebody who, let's say, supported you know, policies that were consonant with their beliefs. It was that they were backing a particular person who was about as ill-equipped as he possibly could be, rather than other people with similar views who were much better equipped. And so that interested me. What was the loyalty to that man and to his family? And so I began digging into that. And, and I guess it was after, sometime into the first year, that I began to realize that to understand George W. Bush and how he transformed America, and I would say a really the world, uh, because this is about much more family of secrets is about much more than the Bush uh, family. It's about everything that's been going on over the last half century. And so I, as I looked at him and what happened with him, I began to focus more on the father, uh, to whom you refer, uh, and and to try to understand the father, because frankly, uh, nobody I think believes that the son would have ever gotten into any high office if he was not following his father. And of course, they not only had the same last name, they had the same first name. Uh, I even saw, believe it or not, some studies that showed that some percentage of Americans vote, voted for the son, believing it actually was the father. Oh dear! <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> Yeah, and, and, so, and so what happened was I became interested in the father also because as I began studying all of these um, rumors about the son, about things he had done in his past that were supposedly being hushed up, uh, things that would absolutely prevent him from being elected or reelected, I would see the fingerprints of the father. And it began to look to me like the father was orchestrating what really – would have to call cover-ups. And so I began to think, how does the father have the kind of power to go in and get, let's say, national military records of his son altered so that uh, the son who vanished from the military during the Vietnam War could literally vanish for an entire year and there would be no accounting for that. You know what's on television right now? Well, Litopia is the antidote. I mean, just thinking that the family secrets clearly took an enormous amount of research and just really how easy it was to get all these people to come up with information because a lot of it would be very sensitive and a lot of people would feel slightly like they were putting either their reputation, not their life, but their reputation maybe on the line. Uh, was it tricky to extract secrets? Uh, yes, because, well, first of all, a couple of things. They're really, in, in, in this world, as you go deeper and deeper into family of secrets, you begin to see that we're really getting, we're, we're worming our way into the inner chambers of the inner sanctum, and the people who are in there don't talk. And so when they're interviewed for books, what they're telling you is essentially drivel. Uh, and so because they're not going to talk, for a lot of reasons, which we can go into, uh, you, you really can't even bother talking to them. And so you've got to talk to other people. And so what you're doing is you're looking for uh, unsung figures, people who came and went, people who were uh, around, flies on the wall, saw bits and pieces of things. But also what you're doing, at least what I do uh, in Family of Secrets and also in my daily work uh, at Who 
but why, is to, is to actually just try to collect enormous amounts of data, meaning thousands and thousands of data points, uh, documents, little things that people tell me who don't know more than that one thing that they saw. And then, and then to collect for, for Family of Secrets. I collected probably about 500 books, uh, many of them obscure that are little, you know, uh, a little known self-published memoirs of people who were in intelligence or uh, doing this or doing that, uh, worked in a company that the Bush family invested in and so forth. And so just assembling this, imagine just taking thousands and thousands of dots and trying to connect them. And then you get a sense of how the picture slowly emerges. Did you ever actually feel personally threatened? Uh, I was only once, I would say, uh, threatened in a slightly uh, obtuse way. A, a man who's mentioned in my book, a very pleasant fellow uh, with a, uh, uh, one of those charming Texas accents and sounds totally harmless, he once chuckled and he said, hey, boy, it's any wonder a guy like you doesn't end up at the bottom of a river. And then he laughed and, of course, the way he said it, it didn't sound like a threat. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, no, I mean, you, you don't. As I say, what you tend to get is you get feedback where you hear that uh, no, they won't talk to you. Certainly, I made requests to speak to President George W. Bush uh, and to speak to his father and to these other people and the requests would come back and they would they would say uh, he's unavailable. Uh, they would never say he doesn't want to talk to you, he doesn't like what you're doing, or even he knows who you are. Uh, so, you know, it's always like that. But then I would get back channel things. So in early in Family of Secrets, you may recall there's a, a fellow I do interview uh, who, who worked in intelligence and worked with them. And uh, at one point I'm talking to him and he says, well, uh, before I talk to you, I'm going to, you know, he says, is this authorized? And I said, authorized by whom? <laughs> You know, who, who would authorize you to talk to me in a, in, a, in a free society? And he said, well, I can't talk to you until I make some phone calls. So he made some calls, and then he called me back, and he actually left me a message saying, um, I'm not allowed to talk to you. <laughs> and I thought, that's interesting, because this is a man who would even deny that he was ever in intelligence work or any kind of government work. And the very fact that he would go on the record to say, I'm, I'm not allowed to talk to you, uh, is very interesting. And, and so that's how it works. And I remember at one point he came back to me, and I, I actually asked him if he spoke to H.W. Uh, and he said he had talked to him and he, he said, he said, don't talk to you. He said, he'd tell him, he, no, he said, that guy's crazy. You started to put these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. First of all, looking at the way that the 2004 election was won, looking at the agenda, the secret agenda, I suppose we have to say, really the underlying agenda underpinning the whole Iraq invasion. You then went backwards and started to look at the connection between the Bush family and the CIA. And then you started to pay it forwards, look at more recent events in history. What was the defining moment for you as an author when you really got your teeth into the book and said, geez, I'm really, I'm getting something good out of this and I'm finding stuff that shocks even me? Yeah, I mean, you know, there were so many moments like that and uh, they, were, they were exciting moments, but they were terrifying, frankly, uh, because when you begin to see that you understand so very little of how things work. Keep in mind, I'm, I'm a, I would say, something of a journalistic veteran covering international stories for uh, publications, TV and radio all over the world. And you like to think that you know stuff. Uh, 
but it gradually dawned on me how little I knew. And then I began to realize that journalists themselves don't know very much. We know what we know. We know what we say. And we don't necessarily know a lot more than that. Uh, and we're so busy telling stories in a very, very sort of narrow way that we, we don't have the time or maybe even the inclination to kind of, let's say, pull the camera all the way back to get the much, much larger uh, uh, scene. And it, you know, it reminds me of, you know, that movie with Jim Carrey, The Truman Show? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I love that because it, that really is a metaphor for kind of what I went through, where I began to see that so many of the things that I was writing about were themselves, I was on a stage set. Give us an example. Uh, give us, well, give us an example. yeah, I mean, I mean, just you know, you you're, you're covering something. Uh, well, look, let's talk about the origins of the CIA. So, for example, uh, when most of the books, the best-selling books by the major historians about the CIA, it just says that in the 1940s, uh, you know, FDR had decided to uh, to uh, disband the OSS, uh, that he didn't feel the need for or a peacetime intelligence service. Uh, but then there were efforts to convince him otherwise, and these were the people who did it and so forth. And actually, you had some people in Britain, including Kim Philby, uh, who mm -hmm. had a big role in convincing uh, the U.S. that they needed to have a peacetime one. And that's, that's sort of the official story. And that's what everybody thinks. But when you go to look at it and you begin to study uh, what went on in that period and what went on later and, and who was behind this, you begin to realize that the CIA wasn't merely uh, an instrument of fighting the Soviets and other threats and protecting so-called national security. It was to preserve secrets and it was to protect uh, interests whose secrets could not come out. And so when I began seeing that, and some of that is in Family of Secrets, about how, let's say, the Bush family and their friends in, in investment banking and in merchant banking and so on, and the ties that they had to uh, power centers and elites all over the world, London, uh, the city of London, uh, going back into the 1800s, uh, the forerunners of the uh, Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, the, the Brown Brothers portion being a British outfit, and you would see these banking combines and efforts that go all the way back to the financing of the uh, Confederacy uh, in the U.S. Civil War and so forth. And you would see these families with these long-term interests being very involved with covert uh, machinations trying to influence the course of events and doing a lot of it covertly. And of course, the CIA, if you think of it as an intelligence agency, if you think of it as something that's collecting information to advise presidents, and of course it seems benign, but when it occurs to you that that's essentially sort of cover for the other part of the agency, what the insiders called the fun and games. That was their term, fun and games. Uh, and this was going in and messing around and, and proactively making things happen, making other things disappear. That's that kind of moment, you know, that kind of moment yeah. where you wake up and you say, oh my gosh, this is not what this thing is. This is something entirely but Russ, different. Russ, what you're saying is getting perilously close now to using the C word, isn't it? We, <laughs> we both know what that is. Well, you know, I'll tell you something about the C word. Uh, the, the C word, and I'm going to say the word, here we go, conspiracy. Yeah. Now, here's the problem with that word. That word has these sort of fantastical connotations, and you sort of imagine some improbable, difficult, bizarre, kind of loony uh, notion. And the problem is that what does the word conspiracy actually mean? If you look it up in the dictionary, conspiracy is two or more people who get together... Uh, uh, to commit a crime. 
And it doesn't even involve, believe it or not, the, the principal definition does not even involve secrets. It's just two or more people getting together for the commission of a crime. And so if one person commits a murder and they do it by themselves, it's a murder. If two people do it and it's conspiracy, then the charges are much more serious and they stand a much longer sentence. If three or more involved, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's all that conspiracy is. And uh, history is full of conspiracies. I am not an expert on the British legal system, but I can tell you in the United States that every day all over the land, people are on trial for conspiracy. Well, okay, fair enough, but it still doesn't, you haven't quite addressed the issue here. I mean, ordinary everyday people, people who have to work hard to make the paycheck at the end of the month, right. they are barely in control of their own destiny. Right. And to suggest, as, as you are doing, <laughs> prove, I would say, actually, but let's say suggest, that there are people out there who whose power transcends in, enormously that sort of sphere. They control the destinies of whole nations. That is something that I think ordinary people have a very hard time getting their head around. Well, the reason they have a hard time getting their head around it is because they're not part of it. And that's why their lives are so difficult to some extent. Uh, you know, you know, you have the same, you've got more of a class system over there than we do. I mean, anybody who goes to the right schools, who's got the right accent, the right haircut and so forth, instantly they're in the right clubs, they meet the right mates, everything becomes much, much easier. It is that process, it is that process which we see the Bush family and the people around them are the closest thing that we have to a kind of a British style uh, aristocracy. And and those are the people who designed and created the Central Intelligence Agency. Those are the people who very much uh, uh, populated, let's say, the, the wise men under uh, Eisenhower and, and Kennedy, and then, by the way, of whom Kennedy fell afoul, which, as you know, I go into uh, in Family of Secrets. And so, and so it's, you know, the reason I don't like the term conspiracy is because it 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 suggests something more sort of nefarious and complex than what I'm talking about. What I'm talking is the ordinary function of insiderism, the ordinary functioning of people saying, let's see, how do we want to go about doing something in order to achieve the ends that we want? We uh, have stock in this company. Uh, we want this company to do certain things, or maybe we want the company's stock to tank because we're betting against it. Uh, and so we want our person in the right position to be able to help us. And so we begin to go about the methodical planning of how you will help your person rise to be in the right position in that company. And so that's really the way that I look at things is the sort of the kind of long-term uh, gaming of things. But if you really think about it and you think about people, I, it, whether you're on the inside or you're not, people you know who spend their whole lives calculating how to get to the head of the garden club or uh, how to sort of their faction take over the golf club, you know, and and push out somebody that they don't like. I mean, this kind of calculation goes on every day everywhere. Like Latopia, then click the like button to share us with your friends on Facebook. It's what friends are for. I've been thinking about this. There's a, there's a number of things there. The, the first is um, function creep is always a, fun, you know, a kind of a fact with any kind of organisation, isn't it? It will extend its remit in small incremental steps. And it's the same with, uh, I'll, I'll use the term because I think it does apply, um, any kind of conspiracy. People make small steps that they can cope with 
the logic of and the rationale of and then they make a step from the end of that step to the end of that step and they end up with something that from their start point they would probably never have countenanced but because each step is rational and logical they haven't really noticed that they've got there and when they've got there they realize they've now they're kind of in a position where it's entirely too much of a uh, kind of an investment to pull back from but the the other side of it is um Talking about the class thing is quite interesting. We we have a family who control things and manipulate the media and do all sorts of things, but they're called the royal family and they've been doing it for donkey's years. And it's probably why quite it's well. less of a shock to the British sometimes that this stuff goes on because we, we just kind of accept it and, and it's just part of what happens in, in those circles. But it's um, conspiracy theory is an interesting thing because I think it's not conspiracy, is it? Conspiracy theory is the dirty word. Um, well, and, and, and I wonder a, whether there's actually a conspiracy to create loads of batshit crazy conspiracy theories so that when somebody comes up with one that's quite sensible and real, people just go, oh, it's another conspiracy theory. I, I, I honestly, I do wonder whether that is the case, actually. Oh, that's absolutely the case. In fact, we know that. That's, that's been documented over the years that, uh, uh, that uh, I mean, this is a classic technique. See, here's another thing. If you work inside one of these intelligence agencies where you're putting out, you know, sort of phony newspapers in Bolivia and, uh, you know, causing scandals in labor unions and so on, when I meet with people who've been in the intelligence world, they love my work and they say, this gets closer to how things really work than anything I've seen. But it's the people who aren't in that world who find it to be so amazing and fantastic and hard to conceptualize. And so, yeah, what you're talking about, absolutely. People start with very, very small steps. But yes, I mean, I I mean, uh, one of the common techniques uh, to discredit anything uh, is to have people do things that superficially seem like the real stuff uh, and then put in something that, uh, uh, you know, throw in a dead fish, you know, throw in something uh, that stinks. And uh, then people say, well, this one stinks and therefore those other ones are not reliable either. And this is called psyops, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the, um, I mean, the ultimate conspiracy, object of conspiracy theories, I suppose, has got to be the Kennedy assassination. And we have, to, let's, let's tackle that head on, because some of the stuff you dug up about that and the Bush family's involvement there is, is pretty extraordinary. Can you just summarize it for us? Yeah. And let me start by saying that uh, I'm really, in many ways, a very... Uh, cautious and conventional journalist. I, I, I don't get excited and rush to believe anything. Uh, everything that's presented to me, whatever the source, I'm always skeptical and I want to see the evidence. And so I've never been what you would call a buff uh, on any of these subjects. And, and as far as the assassination of John F. Kennedy or his brother or Martin Luther King or any of those things that are so controversial, I've never really spent a lot of time uh, looking into, thinking about, or expressing my opinion on it like most journalists we're too busy uh, with our current work and so we don't we don't sort of look to volunteer to walk into the uh, quicksand so um, I, I didn't really have any opinions on that but as I was investigating the Bush family became increasingly interested in Bush's father was struck by the fact that he was CIA director for only a single year and yet they named the CIA's new headquarters after him rather than after Alan Dulles or anybody who'd been there much much longer uh, and I thought that was interesting uh, and as I looked at him and I realized basically, and I document this, I think 
pretty substantially in Family of Secrets that the elder Bush, actually the reason he was made CIA director as a so-called outsider was because he really wasn't an outsider. He was actually covertly an insider. And we see evidence that he was covertly in intelligence work his entire adult life. Now, once we've documented that, then I want to go back and look at all the things he's been doing over the years. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the things that caught my attention, previously published in another book, uh, another bestseller about the Bush family, some years ago, was mention of the fact that George H.W. Bush, uh, interviewed by journalists about his life, and somebody just uh, tossed out a softball and said, uh, well, you must have such interesting memories of, of major events. What do you remember about the day John F. Kennedy was shot? Tell us, where were you and what were your thoughts? And he just froze. Hmm. He just froze. You know, most of us could say, I was five years old and I was in Miss So-and-So's class, or I was on a bus, or you know, whatever. Anyway, he said, you know, gee, I... Uh, I can't remember where I was. <laughs> Everybody knows in the UK, if you were alive, you knew where you were. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in fact, uh, I do quite a bit of public speaking. And one of my questions to the audience always is, let's take a little poll. How many of you were, let's say, five years old or older on November 22, 1963? And then we take a show of hands. And then I say, how many of you, uh, of those of you who are five or older, how many of you do not remember where you were when you heard that, you know, when Kennedy was shot? And no hands go up. No hands go up. In all the time I've been doing this, one lady once raised her hand, but she frankly looked like she didn't know where she was at the time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so you say, well, that's very odd. And believe it or not, that sent me off for years of research into that question. Not so much why could he not remember where he was, but where was he? And I thought, I I'm just going to answer this for my own satisfaction. And so I began to get into where he was. And the answer to where George H.W. Bush was on November 22, 1963, takes up, I think it's five chapters yeah. in Family of Secrets. Five yeah. chapters. Yeah. That's interesting because it's a huge psychological clue because it's when you've been had a significant event, you constantly reinsert it into your short-term memory on a regular basis, and that's why you never forget it, because it's recalled in conversations and, so on, and it's thrown back in all the time. Mm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a bit of a huge pointy stick, really, that one, isn't it? Ross, you're going to have to, you can't just tease us like that. I mean, at the end of five chapters, what do you, what do you say? Uh, well, first of all, as you know, Family of Secrets is written a bit like a thriller, a, a somewhat dense, but still a thriller uh, because it's got so many footnotes. But uh, And I, I don't want to totally take away from the joy of, of experiencing this, but I will say this, a few things. First of all, uh, one of the things that struck me was as I went back on George H.W. Bush and I began to study things he had written, it would be like, you know, 1959 in great detail, 1960 in great detail, 1961 in great detail, 62 in great detail, 1963, the first half in great detail. And then suddenly it'd be 1964. And then he'd say, uh, after the president's death, I blah, 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 blah. You know, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then I thought, Mr. Bush was in Texas and President Kennedy was killed in Texas. And then I thought, Mr. Bush was running for office. He was running for the United States Senate in Texas at the time that Kennedy came on his political trip. So, you know, they were in the same business in the same state on that day. And then I began looking at all of his CIA activity and so on. And, and essentially, I began to find all these interesting things. Here are a couple of examples. One, I found two. Uh, I didn't discover them myself, but I, I, I put them together with a new context. These are two uh, declassified documents, and they both 
uh, are FBI documents, and they both refer to George Bush and to the Kennedy assassination. Uh, one of them is a, uh, a memo uh, from J. Edgar Hoover, the uh, long-lasting and very a troubling director of the FBI, and this is uh, regarding a meeting on November 23, that's the day after the assassination, and it refers to some sort of interagency briefing uh, in which they're talking about the Kennedy assassination and trying to obtain information about Cuban exiles and how they're reacting to this, to the assassination, and whether they might somehow see the assassination as an invitation to launch a raid on Castro's Cuba. And it mentions that the FBI uh, has liaised with the uh, representatives of two other intelligence agencies on this matter. And one is a man from the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the other, it says, is Mr. George Bush of the CIA. Hmm. Now, then we go into this whole back history where when somebody found that memo and confronted then Vice President George H.W. Bush about it, he, his initial reaction was, well, that's not me. It couldn't be me. I wasn't in the CIA. Uh, and then uh, sometime later, they asked the CIA. The CIA said, we have no comment. We never uh, confirm or deny anything, which is true. And then sometime later, they did an extraordinary thing. This, this memo came to light as George H.W. Bush was actually running for president of the United States. And obviously, would have been a big problem for him. And so at that point, the CIA took a stand that they never do. They said, we've looked into this and we would like to reveal that that memo refers to another George Bush. And so what I do then is I go and do some research, and there was another George Bush, but he was a man who was not a spy. He was not in the CIA. He actually was recruited from a very benign governmental agency where he was an extremely low level, basically like an accountant. Uh, he was recruited in the fall of 1963. The CIA approached him and said, hey, how would you like to come to work here? And he said, well, uh, okay, it's sort of. He, he sort of was surprised. I think it was like that movie Being There or something, you know, with Peter Sellers. <laughs> he couldn't understand why they would want a man from the Social Security Administration. But he said, sure. And they brought him in as a trainee, and they put him in at this very, very low-level job. And then uh, about two or three months after the assassination, they got rid of him. <laughs> oh, God. This is like Robert Ludlum meets Groucho Marx, really. Yeah. Um, we don't have time, but I'm just going to uh, briefly mention there's another fascinating chapter or two or three about Nixon, uh, much reviled president, of course, who uh, you, you've dug up some very interesting stuff on, and apparently he wasn't quite as, as black as he was painted in the Watergate scandal. Well, this is, again, a thing that astonished me, because I came at Watergate the way everybody does, based on the things we're uh, the conventional wisdom that he was just sort of out of control and the system corrected itself and got rid of him. And I always accepted that. Uh, but as I dug deeper, who should show up again but George H.W. Bush, the uh, the zealot of American history. <laughs> uh, and he pops up. Uh, this time he's uh, – uh, well, see, what, what happened was I discovered that he had this amazing upward trajectory that no matter how uh, non-inspirational, uh, uh, how lacking in vision he was, he kept being kicked upstairs. And I was interested in why that was. And so I began studying how George H.W. Bush had moved up the ladder. And as I did that, I discovered that Richard Nixon was basically taking care of him while Nixon was not taking care of anybody else. Uh, 
And I thought that was so strange. And I thought, well, why would Nixon do that? And to make a long story short, I went back and I dug into trying to find out the beginning point at which Nixon and the Bushes are joined. And it takes me all the way back to 1946 when Richard Nixon first runs for Congress. And I discover, lo and behold, this is not in any other book anywhere, that when Richard Nixon first entered politics, the man who made him secretly was a man named Prescott Bush. And he huh. was the grandfather of George W., the father of George H.W. He was an investment banker who became a senator. He was on the ground floor of the creation of the CIA. Uh, and they picked Nixon, uh, a group of bankers out of New York picked Nixon to knock out a critic of the banking industry. And now we get back to this kind of underlying theme of family of secrets, which is this constant sort of orchestration by great moneyed interests. So they basically, to make a long story very short, these banking interests basically owned Richard Nixon. And just like out of the, the scene from The Godfather, they owned him from the beginning of his career. They would tell him what to do. And in Family of Secrets, we have a wonderful uh, set of photos in there. And I hope you take a look at a photo of Richard Nixon and Prescott Bush. And you see they're wearing cowboy hats. And Bush, uh, the, the, the senior Bush, uh, is uh, the grandfather, rather, is uh, adjusting Nixon's cowboy hat. And Nixon has a uh, what we call in the United States a, a shit-eating grin. Perhaps you too. <laughs> and Nixon looks very embarrassed. Like he can't do anything because he doesn't dare quibble with this man. And I think that sums it up. And so by the time Nixon became president, he owed a tremendous amount to the Bush family. And they were pushing him to take George H.W. Uh, on as his vice president, and he wouldn't do it. And uh, some years later, one of his Nixon's top aides asked him, he said, why didn't you take uh, people, someone like Bush? Why did you take Spiro Agnew, this awful, awful uh, a mm. totally unsympathetic, uh, uh, horrible-looking, everything bad about him. Why'd you take him on? To which he replied, "Assassination insurance." Wow. Jeez. And so, and so, he didn't want George H. W. Bush on the ticket because he feared something bad would happen to him, so that Bush could become president. Nixon began when he became president. He began fighting with the CIA, with the FBI, with all of these, with the banking interests, with the sugar lobby, with all of these people. Because when he once he was president, he thought, "I don't need these guys anymore," and he learned the hard way that he did. And so, what Family of Secrets reveals, another shocker, just like the five chapters on JFK, is that Watergate was essentially a coup d'etat, that it involved the same interest who became uh, uh, alarmed by and tired of John F. Kennedy, became alarmed of and uh, 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 by and tired of Richard Nixon, and that it turns out it's not even a party thing. It's much bigger. Uh, I just want to talk to you about the future of investigative journalism. You've mentioned your website once or twice. We will mention it again at the end of the show. You've set, you've set your own thing up, haven't you, which is very brave of you. It's called whowhatwhy.com. I mean, investigative journalism is not something that consumers, readers, call them what you want to, are directly used to paying for. I'm wondering what you think the future is. It's hard to know where all of this is going. There's no question that uh, in a world where people think that anybody can be a journalist, there's going to be a lot more content uh, in a world where uh, the... Um, the big outfits don't want to pay for it or want to pay as little as possible, mm. uh, that what's going to happen is real, true, what I consider to be investigative reporting, which is uh, skilled work, work based on years of training, uh, an open mind, a fertile mind, um, lots of uh, wide-ranging reading and thinking, lots of research and interviews. That kind of labor-intensive work, I think, is in danger of vanishing altogether. Uh, and so I just decided, you know what? 
I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to set this thing up. Uh, we don't always, right now, we don't have the resources to do as much of the long-form kind of work that I do in Family of Secrets. We hope to do more. Uh, but we're trying to at least do medium and shorter pieces that, let's say, bring an investigative mindset and an analytical mindset and, a, and an open mind where we ask questions that others aren't asking. And we're hoping, hoping that enough people from the global public get behind what we do, that we can keep it a nonprofit, ad-free, uh, and nonpartisan, and turn it into a, a major source where people can turn for uh, true and accurate information. It's certainly very brave of you, Russ, to, to do this. And um, I mean, is there any possibility that you might, I don't know, turn it into a Kickstarter type of thing? So if, you know, if you raise enough money towards a target, you will you know, investigate a certain issue. Well, it's funny you should mention that because we're about to launch our first Kickstarter campaign. Oh, cool. Uh, and if you go to whowhatwhy.com in, I, I hope, about a week's time, you can get information on that. We're going to test it out, see how it goes. If it works, uh, sure, we'll do more of those. Absolutely. Let's let the public vote on what they'd like to hear about, and then we'll do the digging. That sounds very good. Um, we've got an election coming up. You've got an election coming up. I mean, what, what's your thought on the agenda going on underneath the surface there? Well, you know, I've sort of given up on elections a long time ago because we end up with this very narrow cast of characters. They're in many ways more similar than they're different. We all become alarmed because the media creates this idea of how they're so different and so forth. But in terms of the big issues, the huge, you know, sort of economic interest, a global policy, resource extraction policy, what have you, uh, the two are so similar. And so uh, well, there are many, many differences, obviously, and, and those are clear. But they're funded by, largely by the same interest, and that's disappointing. It's disappointing that we can't find a way in the United States to have a multiplicity of voices, to have true diversity of choices uh, in our political system. And that's another thing that I, I'm hoping we can do some uh, breakthrough reporting on in the years to come. Totally good. Well, that's whowhatwhy.com, isn't it? Um, yeah. And the book is Family of the Se uh, Family of Secrets. The full title, by the way, is Family of Secrets: The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Last Fifty Years. But the last fifty years. Yeah, it's a magisterial work. Are you working on any other book at the moment? Yeah, Russ? actually working on two book projects. You're going to tell us what they are? I'm not. All right. <laughs> Keep your secrets to yourself, Mr. Baker. Can I can I ask a question before he goes? Yeah, go is ahead. All right. Yeah, yeah. I was only going to ask about lizards. Oh, <laughs> I'll leave that to the Brits. Well, we need to know. This is the important question of our time. <laughs> Lizards are things that I pick up by their tail and the tail comes off. We, we need to find somebody who's grabbed hold of George Bush's tail then. <laughs> see, see if it comes off. I'll leave that to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Ross Baker, thank you so much for joining us. And if you're listening to us tonight, do join us in seven days' time for another fascinating Little Taker After Dark. Good night, everyone. Night-night. Night-night.